Welcome to Digging Deeper in Grace, a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Our goal each episode is to dig deeper into the scriptures with a focus on our most recent sermon. And now let's dig deeper. Hello, and thank you for joining us for this week's episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, and it's been a little time, Matt, since you've been with us. Happy to welcome back Matt Bennett to the chair. Matt has shared from this uh, past week from Matthew chapter 9, and that scripture passage and sermon will be the focus of our discussion today. So, Matt, great to have you back. You had a lot to cover this past week. I did. It was beautiful, beautiful text, but uh, definitely a good bit of it. And uh, Matt, with chapter nine, you know, I referenced it in that in that last comment. We come to the end of the section of teaching and, and miracles that attest to Jesus's identity, and we keep being reminded throughout the passage, up through chapter nine, pretty much every every chapter is pointing to who Jesus is. And I'm thinking back to Chris Miller's explanation of Matthew's use of the word behold. Mm -hmm. Matthew and Luke tend to Mm -hmm. use this word uh, more than the other two, Mark and and John. But Chris shared that the writer used this word to signal something that was pretty incredible happening there in the text. And and in this particular chapter, we have six instances Mm -hmm. of that word. And throughout the entire book, there are 47 or 57, rather, uh, more than the average number in this particular chapter. I know it's not a graduate level analysis. Analysis, this uh, analysis of the word behold, but the passage is packed with some really incredible miracles and teachings. Yeah. It really seems like what Matthew has done is in the first four chapters, he's given us Jesus's credentials and some of those ways that the Old Testament prepared us to see what God would do in the day that he acted. And then Matthew 5 through 7, you see Jesus as this one who is this Davidic king sort of sitting down and giving the kingdom charter, what it looks like to live in his kingdom. And then eight and nine are sort of the demonstration that his authority that he just spoke with and taught with extends beyond just his ideas or his ethics, and it actually is manifest in who he is. And so it gives further testimony to what Matthew's been asking us to consider for the first nine chapters, who is this man? Right, and whenever we're reading scripture, it's good to have a good understanding of the context. Knowing that Matthew lived most, if not all, of these instances mm-hmm. there beside Jesus early in the chapter, mm-hmm. he's he's calling there in chapter 9, Jesus is calling Matthew, uh, elsewhere he's called Levi, but uh, knowing that Matthew lived these, and Matthew, uh, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of course, mm-hmm. He chooses these things. Mm-hmm. The, these things had an impact on on a guy like Matthew too, mm-hmm. a guy who was called out of a profession. We don't know what was going on in his life, how God was preparing him for this ministry that he would have as a mm-hmm. disciple and an apostle and mm-hmm. and, and church leader uh, on in after Jesus's death. But these are things that really made an impact on Matthew. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think you see that represented in his use of that word, behold. I right. Mean, it's almost as if for himself, as he's writing out this account of Jesus, like, oh my goodness, wow. check it out. Like, <laughs> yeah. this is exactly this what happened. we were prepared to see. Right. And it's happening right here. So don't miss this. This mm-hmm. isn't just a cool story. This is a testimony to what God has said he was going to do in the right. day that he would act. So I, I just, yeah, it's good to get that context. And as we're reading the scripture, remember what's happening throughout the, throughout before, mm-hmm. after, and, and during. Mm-hmm. So Matthew thus far has portrayed Jesus as teaching and distinguishing the truth from the practice of the scribes and Pharisees. Mm-hmm. And you, you referenced that in chapters one through four and even, mm-hmm. up, you know, five through seven, chapter mm-hmm. eight last week. But, but now Jesus ramps up the tensions even further mm-hmm. and in no less of a place than his adopted hometown. That's just, that's a little snippet in there. And, uh, 
the first part of the chapter mm-hmm. that it's easy to miss. And we believe he goes back to Capernaum. Uh, that was his home base, adopted hometown. In this first miracle, Jesus, for the very first time, is quoted here in Matthew as uttering the phrase, your sins are forgiven. Mm-hmm. Can you give us some perspective context, if you will, on how this statement might have hit those hearing it here for the first time, the scribes and Pharisees, the people, the other disciples that are accumulating. What might they have been thinking? Give us some perspective. Well, first off, I mean, I I think once we encounter the Pharisees in the the New Testament, they're already well-established as these traditionalists who have in many ways kind of taken it upon themselves to be the arbiters of Israel's law and even beyond Israel's law, sort of their own self-made hedge of protection around the law. Mm -hmm. And so they get to be the ones to discern who's keeping the law and keeping our traditions and therefore somebody who is a candidate for atonement through the the means of the uh, what the temple accomplishes on behalf of people but then also they get to be the ones who get to point the finger and say hey you're out of sync you're out of line right and so the Pharisees are here prepared as this foil against Jesus's uh, merciful and, and gracious arrival on the scene as the culmination of what that temple sacrificial mm-hmm. system is. But I think it's it's at least helpful for us to think in terms of uh, where did the Pharisees come from? Because we meet them at this point where they are, right. you know, they're the bad guys, yeah. you know. But there was at least initially a sense of the the uprising of the the pharisaical movement that was recognizing that these people uh, 400 years 500 years before had just been ripped out of their land because of their mm-hmm. neglect of right. God's law and they had graciously been restored to the land and so there was a sense of having this visceral understanding of how precious keeping the law and the covenant was for the people and those initial hedges that were put in place to, to give definition to what does it mean to work on the Sabbath? Hmm. Well, we don't want to violate that because we don't want to go into exile again because our God has allowed the land to spit us out of, out, out of itself. And so that experience then called, caused them to say, well, what can we do to make sure that we, we don't violate this somewhat ambiguous command? Well, let's put some real strictures in place so that we know if you've taken this many steps, you're good. But if you've taken one more than that, all of a sudden that qualifies as working on the Sabbath. So there is a sense in which we need to understand some of the origins of the Pharisees probably are coming out of a right response to and the exile. And in some ways, you could even call them heroes. At least those who ostensibly began with a respect for the law right, of God. Right. But that respect and that desire to avoid exile very quickly became a sense of, well, we can do it. Mm -hmm. If we can put some clear delineations to what the law looks like and maybe even add a hedge of barrier protection, Mm -hmm. well, we can keep that. And so very quickly it moves away from wanting to pursue God and follow his law, and it moves to a self-confidence that they can do that. Right. So when Jesus then shows up on the scene and he offers this forgiveness of sins on the basis of his own authority, all of a sudden it's just totally demolishing their their system and their expectations. They're saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, we're the ones who get to determine who's walking in sync and who's not. And this guy hasn't done anything. Like, these friends just showed up. Like, what are you doing <laughs> offering man on this the scene. radical <clears throat> declaration over mm-hmm. somebody's most central problem? 
So really coming on, as you said, coming onto the scene fresh and Jesus all of a sudden is taking their place. Yeah. Yeah. He's usurping their authority. (laughs) Who invited you? Okay. So you touched on it, but while we're talking about contextualizing the narrative here, it it can be very helpful to take a few steps back even further and and remember just what you said, the preceding 400 plus years, Mm. what that had looked like for the Jews. And one can gain a better sense about the people's just utter amazement mm-hmm. at Jesus's words and miracles by, mm-hmm. by taking them at face value, but mm-hmm. even more so by understanding what was going on during that 400-year period, the, the silent years, mm-hmm. uh, if you will, between Malachi's prophecy and Jesus's birth. I mean, this mm-hmm. was not only silence of prophecy, mm-hmm. but it was, in effect, silence from God. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the, those, that 400-year span between when they started returning from the Babylonian exile mm-hmm. to now, mm-hmm. what's going on during that period? Yeah. Well, I think that is that is kind of what we just alluded to, that period of time where people tried to take it upon themselves to say, our forefathers violated God's covenant, and we will not do that again. So therefore, we're going to figure out ways that we can add mm-hmm. traditional barriers that are going to uh, go beyond what the law specifies in order to make sure that we're not violating the law, but then that that layer of protection became the litmus test of whether or not you were in good standing with the community. And uh, in many ways, um, you know, it it shows some of that human tendency to take it upon ourselves to make sure that we can justify our own sense of right right standing before the Lord. And it it doesn't take too long before a group of humans take the instructions (laughs) from the Lord and try to add on to them. Right. You know, some people some people may find themselves more tempted to uh, question the law, but mm-hmm. then you've got a whole other group of people who are uh, maybe more inclined towards a, a legalistic perspective, and that group of people then, uh, uh, like we see today, uh, right. may may be inclined to kind of say, "Well, yeah, I know, Lord, your your word is sufficient." But I'm pretty sure there's some other things that you didn't address that we need to make more concrete, and we go right. beyond the sufficiency of God's communication right. to make up our own additional rules. And I, even as I said those words, the silent years, I'm reminded God is not silent. I mean, He's given us His word. Uh, I, was God working during those silent years in the life of the Jews, of the faithful even, those who had been were seeking to be faithful. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, it, he calls us to wait right. in those seasons, and yeah. sometimes for us as New Testament people and as uh, readers of the Old Testament, I mean, this 400 years of silence is significant because of what comes when God again speaks through right. John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus, but at the same time, there's tons of places throughout the Old Testament where it'll say, and Moses was in the desert for 40 years. <laughs> and we just read over that, but we're like, oh my goodness, 40 years from promise to encounter with God, right. or from uh, God's promise to actually seeing uh, the fruits of that. There's there's multiple places throughout history and throughout biblical history. David's anointing as king waiting. was, uh, David's anointing was followed by what? Yeah. <laughs> years and as a shepherd and but, waiting. Yeah. And, and it's interesting, too, to consider maybe in the Gospels places where uh, the, the language of immediately comes right. up. I mean, Mark, Mark. says this a lot. <laughs> We're going to see this, though, in um, subsequent chapters in Matthew. The, Jesus got into the boat, and immediately the wave stopped. And we, we like those immediate moments. Don't we, though? <laughs> but if God has spoken, then it's binding, it's sufficient, it's appropriate, whether 
he immediately brings that reality to bear or whether he calls his people to wait and to trust in his goodness. Right. Yeah, and those times of waiting, those times of, of we'll call them silence, apparent silence, are not times where we should just be standing still. There are times that God is really working on us. And I think if we, most of us can look back on those times in our lives where we are saying, oh, yeah, I can see what God was doing, but I couldn't see it then. Right. Sometimes we have to, we're going to get to a, a phrase that you used, we have to uh, be in confident submission to God during those times and say, okay, I'm trusting you even though everything around me tells me not to. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's displayed yeah. his character over and over exactly. and over again, not yeah. only in our lives, but certainly through the pages of Scripture. And no so doubt. He's faithful, we can trust Good. him. Good. Well, in, in chapter 8, we're introduced to the title, Son of Man. Uh, and then here in chapter 9, verse 27, to another messianic title, Son of David. Of course, Matthew shared the, that title in his very few first words there in chapter 1. But this was the first time that someone in public is shown addressing Jesus in this way. And, and you know, the, it was a blind man, one of the two blind men who were there. And no doubt they had heard of Jesus' other recent miracles. And, and I'm sure they were hopeful for a miracle of their own. Maybe it was of one of great faith. They just knew who this was. Mm -hmm. This wasn't abnormal for people to come along and say, I'm the one mm -hmm. uh, in this time, right? Sure. Uh, there were others who were saying, sure. I'm the Messiah. But coming on the heels of, of this series of unprecedented recent miracles that we've mm -hmm. read in chapter 8 and thus far in chapter 9. Is, is that a pun? No, on, it, on the heels? Unintended. H -H -H. Unintended, okay, okay, right. but... Uh, <laughs> But thank you for catching that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that the blind men were, were simply verbalizing what everybody's thinking and saying, is this the one? Yeah, yeah. And I think there's a sense in which uh, we see multiple places where Matthew will very briefly refer to, and the Jesus healed all the sick and the blind, and he cast out demons. And it'll sort of summarize a lot of these accounts so that Jesus's healing and his, his ministry of uh, these signs of his messianic arrival and, and vocation are all over the pages of Scripture and all over uh, the activities that Jesus does. But Matthew is intentionally drawing out some specific ones. And I think there's, there's always the question that we don't have access to of <laughs> what were these people thinking? What was their awareness of what they were saying when they right. said, Son of David? Were they... Were they fully aware that God was acting mm -hmm. to make good on his Genesis 3.15 process right. promise in this man? I'm not sure, but I think Matthew, and even more so the Holy Spirit, is intending to draw our attention as Bible readers to mm -hmm. the fact that these activities, and we're actually going to see this as Jesus' own proof for his messianic identity in chapter 11 mm -hmm. when John the Baptist asks, who right. are you? Right. These activities are more than just bursts of Jesus' power, but they're actually signs testifying that what God has said through the Old Testament over and over in many different ways about what's going to characterize his action to restore and renew Jesus is doing and manifesting and giving evidence to who he is. Right. And, and make no mistake about it. I mean, they they were asking the the, the right question, yeah. whatever their level of faith was. Yeah. And there was obviously faith there because yeah. Jesus said, because of your faith, yeah. uh, you're made well. And one of the one of the things, sorry, this is a no, bit of an aside, but um, uh, one of the things I didn't get to put in the sermon was, as we look at the, um, the woman with the issue of bleeding, mm -hmm. there's some really interesting things in that particular passage that do seem to point to something more than just this woman reaching out for healing, but also something that seems to indicate that she understands Jesus to be 
unique to all right. the other healers. Right. And where Matthew is short on details and some of the things that we talked about, like his own testimony, Jesus says, follow me, so mm -hmm. he did. Um, <laughs> here, there's some interesting details included that make you wonder, why did he say that? Like, it actually says that the woman conceived in her mind that if she could grab the edge of his garment, the hem of his garment, yep. then she would be healed. So she reached out and she grabbed his garment. So why add that specificity. Well, there's some interesting places that the edge of a person's garment actually play out in the biblical, uh, in the Old Testament. Right. You can look at like Numbers 15 instructs uh, the people to put tassels on the edge of their garment with a blue strand that is to remind them of the Torah and their call to be holy, set apart, to be made right. Um, and then there's also in places like, well, Ezekiel 16, mm -hmm. God describes Israel when he found her as a, uh, a, a woman destitute and uh, bloodied and naked, covered in her shame, and he extends the edge of his garment to mm -hmm. cover her, to cleanse her from her blood. Interesting. Okay. And there's also uh, the, this idea of when Ruth goes to Boaz, right. and uh, she comes to him, she says, spread the edge of your garment, or spread the wings mm -hmm. of your garment over me, that I might, uh, that I might be brought into your family, rescued, uh, adopted, brought from this place of hopelessness into a place of protection. And then uh, that same language of wings shows up in Malachi 3, and this reference to the, the, the sun of righteousness will rise mm -hmm. with healing in its wings. Mm. And all of these different references to wings or edge of the garment that are oftentimes the, the, same, the same language group seem to be building some importance around that issue. So when this woman comes and specifically grabs the wings of Jesus' garment mm. and receives healing, which... The Greek word healing is the same word for salvation, and there seems to be a, okay. an interplay. Contextually, obviously, you can determine what what seems to be going on there. But Matthew actually uses that phrase three times, that word three times in that section, which seems to imply something beyond just the the healing she's receiving of her physical issue, and something that's actually restorative of of her uh, her condition as one who's set apart so anyway Fascinating. no that's a great it's great stuff and of course you know very simple also to go to a couple of the other accounts mm -hmm. uh in the gospels that that portray this and there are even some other facts in there uh, some uh, amazement that he even said somebody touched me well, of course everybody's touching you yeah. <laughs> you're yes, in a crowd yes. right yeah. but just a lot of uh, fascinating uh, fascinating details in here i appreciate you bringing that out and then the intimate address take heart daughter yes uh, your faith has made you well That's how many incredible. times had she been addressed like that yeah in the past 12 years yeah right. she was an outcast mm -hmm. through no fault of her own mm -hmm. yeah. wow yeah. So fascinating, and Jesus does that to all of us, doesn't he? Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Son, daughter, yeah. brother, sister, uh, we are to Jesus. So, so Matt, uh, let's get to that phrase that I referenced earlier mm -hmm. in your message Sunday. Your pivotal statement, what I'll call your pivotal statement, mm -hmm. I think that's what you intended, was mm -hmm. something pretty close to this paraphrase. What I heard you say was, because Jesus is the Davidic shepherd king, we should confidently follow him in faithful submission. Is that pretty right? Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. good, good. I was listening. So <laughs> confidence and submission are, are two words, Matt, that are often hard to practice together. Mm -hmm. They both call for great trust. Mm -hmm. When you submit to somebody, you got to trust them at some level. And that confidence comes mm -hmm. from trust in somebody. Mm -hmm. So we can all admit, I'm sure, to some level mm -hmm. of a lack of confidence, if we're mm -hmm. honest, even mm -hmm. 
lack of confidence in Jesus. So mm-hmm. speak to those who have trouble trusting even Jesus, their Lord and Savior. Give us some practical ways to follow him in yeah. faithful submission. What does that yeah. look like? How can we build that? Yeah. Well, I think uh, I think there's any number of specific ways that that plays out. But the heart of it is saying, when you look at Jesus, you look at one who has wielded his total authority. <laughs> what he says at the end of Matthew 28 in those famous verses is that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Matthew's been laying out the fact that he already possesses this radical authority, um, not only in his teaching and instructions, his law-giving, his ethics, but also in his compassionate uh, use of that authority and power to turn back the effects of sin. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we see in Jesus is somebody who has this total authority, and he uses it on behalf of his people to the degree that he goes to a cross. Mm-hmm. The one with total authority uses that authority not to make much of himself, right. but to die the death that his subjects deserve. If somebody's going to die on your behalf, it sure makes it a whole lot easier to follow them and to submit to them. And the reality is, what we see throughout the rest of Scripture is that Jesus, as the incarnate Son of God, is not just somebody who arrives in the middle of history, but rather the one who was uh, the, the means of creation itself. So the author has the authority mm, over the right. story, right? And uh, just like the designer of something knows how it is to function and an instruction manual given for how to make it function according to its purpose is not some sort of imposition on its use, but rather is the, the means by which it is to fulfill its purpose. So, so too, when we come to Jesus and we find his instructions where he calls us to things, especially when we find in ourselves some of a natural sin-stained inclination towards Mm -hmm. a particular sin or rebelling against a particular call. Maybe that's even something like resisting Jesus's call to to go and share the gospel with our neighbors, to say, well, that's uncomfortable. I'm happy to let Jesus exercise his authority to forgive my sins, but to call me to maybe a socially awkward encounter, I'm not sure that I'm willing to submit to that. But my goodness, what is evangelism other than rehearsing that same salvation that you enjoy that is pointing to the Jesus who has total authority but who has used it on behalf of you and the has extended the invitation to your neighbors to say, come to me, right. all you who are weary and heavy laden, as we'll see in chapter uh, chapter 11. And so there's, uh, there's just a, a real sense of saying we buck at the idea of submitting our autonomy that we think right. we have. Especially in our, shall I, can I say American churches, I think sure. too often we, we build that up as something that is almost sacred. Sure. It's sure, not sure, sacred sure. itself. Yeah. yeah. I have my own individual rights and I'm going to exercise them on behalf of They're my inalienable. Own, uh, yeah. my own <laughs> pursuit of happiness. Yeah. And if God's commands get in the way of what I esteem to be my, uh, my own happiness or pursuit thereof, it, it pinches. But when you look at the one who's giving these instructions, not only is he the author who knows how the story is supposed to go, the designer who knows how things are supposed to function, but he has demonstrated that he is for us in, in every possible way that it could be. And yep. so trusting this one, even when it's uncomfortable, inconvenient, hard, or even risky, is, is trusting the one who is, has demonstrated 
is for usness. Right. I just coined a new, new, <laughs> new word there. Um, We're puns and new words. We're doing yeah, great today. Right. He is the for us one. Right. And yet he's also the one who's designed us and knows how life is to work. So submitting to him is actually the most self-serving thing because it's, it's <laughs> it where we will find our deepest right. satisfaction. Unless we, we skate past it, we, it just seems to keep coming back up in Matthew, really throughout the scripture. But one of the ways to do that, I, when my kids were young, and mm-hmm. I can still ask the same question today, really, of anybody, who do you want to be like when you grow up? And just pointing them to those people then mm-hmm. and saying, Hey, those that person could be a great coach for yeah. you. Yeah. And putting yourself in a submissive relationship mm-hmm. to a coach, a a, a discipler, mm-hmm. a mentor, if you will, mm-hmm. who are, will challenge you. Mm-hmm. Perhaps somebody who has developed a a real strong lifestyle towards what you want to accomplish and putting yourself in submission under those. It's uh, God tells us to do that. And he modeled, and of course Christ modeled that as a discipler himself. Yeah. Yeah. And we all certainly need to be um, uh, seeking to live out lives that are both modeling after those who've gone ahead and also seeking to be models for those behind. But I think those, Unique intervals, too, uh, in our church's life, like we just had a few weeks ago mm-hmm. with our brother and sister who right. laid out in front of us the risky step that they were taking in pursuit of following this shepherd king. That's a great opportunity for us to pause and say, do we prioritize our own comfort over what might be, uh, from a worldly standpoint, a crazy mm-hmm. obedience to King Jesus, or do we trust that even in the midst of suffering, that shepherd king who walks with us is for us and is more valuable than anything we could give up to, and, to pursue him. And uh, faithful submission does not necessarily mean a lack of fear. Right. Sure. Often sure. fear, I can think back to my athletic, more, more athletic days, <clears throat> that those days are quickly waning, or other, uh, other pursuits. There's uh, been fear there. Am I, am I able to do this? Hmm. That can be a driver, too, yeah. and, and an encourager. Yeah, yeah. And that's Jesus' address so oh, many times, certainly. right? Fear not. Take exactly. courage. And the courage is not mustered up, but right. it's rather cling to the presence of the one who has total authority and, and going he's through. Good for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, walk I, with me, no doubt. So, Matt, let's move into next week. We'll be working through the next session mm-hmm. of uh, Matthew's account of Jesus's ministry, mm-hmm. beginning in chapter ten. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're really getting into it. We're, we're coming to where Jesus is really heading to, and we've we've uh, foreshadowed this mm-hmm. here throughout the past ten or nine yeah. chapters now, and that is yeah. a call to discipleship, a call yeah. to faithfulness. You mm-hmm. talk about Matthew chapter twenty-eight, the Great Commission, uh, here uh, moments ago. But mm-hmm. aside from the obvious encouragement to read the chapter multiple mm-hmm. times before Sunday morning. Give us some homework to help yeah. us prepare for that particular study in chapter 10. Yeah. Well, it is an interesting sort of hinge in Matthew's gospel in that the first nine chapters seem to introduce Jesus and his ministry validate him as the uh, the, the anointed king who's here to be the Davidic son who's going to bring about the, the kingdom effects mm-hmm. that turn back sin in all of its manifestations. And uh, in chapter 10, then, it's interesting that chapter 9 ends with this pray to the Lord of the harvest that he'll send out laborers. And then in chapter 10, (laughs) it's like, oh, hey, (laughs) you guys who just prayed that, guess what? You're the answer to that prayer. But uh, one thing that Chris Miller pointed out is that in light of the whole book, there's actually two commissionings in in a sense. This first one, where the disciples are sent out to demonstrate the same 
powers of manifesting, ma- manifesting the effects of the kingdom, validating the fact that they are to call people to mm. point to Jesus. Right. But they're preaching a gospel that has not yet occurred. I mean, the, the <laughs> king is on the scene. Right. But the forgiveness of sins that he's going to affect through an unexpected season of suffering, death, and resurrection, ultimately, hasn't yet occurred. So they're proclaiming the kingdom, but then Matthew chapter 11 through 27 are going to show that the kingdom actually comes, though with total power, it comes through suffering, trial, tribulation, rejection, such that once we get to Matthew 28 and this commission that I think is binding to the church from that point on, uh, there's a sense in which that commission goes with the uh, the upside-down kingdom expectations of saying, we preach a crucified king who is also <laughs> king over death. We preach an ascended king who is also our great high priest. And all of those things that were being turned back in terms of sin's effects that were these hope-filled moments, they are manifest in Christ and his ministry, but we also should expect that if we are to follow him, we're going to follow him through the valley of the shadow of death, and there's going to be persecution, and it's a, it's not easy, but it is light as he talks about his burden. And it strikes me that it's a lot different following him in chapter 10, immediately following chapters 8 and 9. Mm-hmm than it is in chapters 27 and 28 (laughs) after he's been put to death. The dynamics are different. And all of us have those instances where we have to hitch up our pants, so to speak, or allow, you know, better put, allow the Holy Spirit to hitch them up and guide us and direct us in that confident submission. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good stuff. Well, been talking today with Matt Bennett. We've been discussing his recent sermon from Matthew chapter 9, and you can access Matt's sermon and many other messages from our extensive audio catalog, as well as recent podcast episodes by visiting gracecedarville.org on the World Wide Web and clicking podcast on the media tab. We also encourage you to share your questions and comments with us each week by emailing them to contact at gracecedarville.org. That's contact at gracecedarville.org. And please join us next time. We'll be continuing in our study of Matthew. And until then, I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, thanking you again for tuning into this week's episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. Digging Deeper in Grace is a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Visit us online at gracecedarville.org and join us next time as we continue our discussion. In the meantime, we invite you to continue digging deeper in grace as you read God's Word.